Take your Bible, please, and uh, meet me in, where are we today? Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. Something happened to you this week that is so common, you probably didn't even recognize it. Maybe it happened while you were at home with another family member or, or with someone at work or with a friend or teacher at school. Maybe it happened at the grocery store when you were, uh, you were, you were standing, if, if you've ever been in Costco in particular, you're standing in a, an extremely ungodly long line and then uh, uh, a register, a new register opens up over here, and someone who hasn't even been in line is first to be served. Maybe it happened in a situation like that. Maybe it was when the cable guy uh, didn't show up when he said he would. Or when someone you were counting on, someone you were trusting uh, to come through for you, let you down. Who knows, maybe, maybe it even happened to you this morning as you were on your way to church. Whatever it was, I'm guessing that something happened this week that upset you. It bothered you. It provoked you. And it provoked you in a way that you could no longer sit idly by. We come to Acts chapter 17 to find the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens, and he is provoked. He's in Athens because he was chased out of Thessalonica and Berea by opponents to the Christian faith. So the believers in those cities, fearing for Paul's safety, uh, they sent him away as a protective measure. Paul found himself in Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him so they could continue on to Corinth. That's where they wanted to go. They were going to Corinth. Corinth was, at that time, the political capital. But while he waited in Athens, he noted something, he, he noticed something about the city that bothered and provoked him, namely the rampant idolatry. Everywhere he turned, people were worshiping false gods. How many of you believe we're living in a post-Christian world? I'm not so sure. <laughs> I'm not sure that I buy into that. I'm not sure I believe it because it assumes we were living in a Christian world. But the world, as you know, the world has never been distinctly Christian. Even though certain nations of the world come from Christian roots or claim Christianity, that doesn't make it Christian in the biblical sense of the word. But let's just, for the sake of argument, because I set you up on that, and I admit that, and 
I've even titled the sermon. I've used the phrase post-Christian world. So, so I set you up for that. So let's assume for a moment that we are in post-Christian times. What then? What should we do, church? What should we do if we're living in post-Christian times? Shall we throw up our hands in disgust? Shall we hang our heads in defeat? Shall we complain and moan and point our fingers? What shall we do? If we're living in post-Christian times, wouldn't it make sense to learn from our pre-Christian forebearers whose world was much like ours and honestly, in many cases, much, much, much worse? What can be learned from them? from those who've gone before us as it relates to our Christian role and responsibility. And at least from this passage this morning, we learn that sharing Christ effectively, hear this church, sharing Christ effectively, it begins with genuine concern for the lost. And then doing something about it. Let's read this together. Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, uh, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, uh, he seems to be preaching, uh, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, For as I passed along and and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one, na- from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually very far from each one of us. For in him... We live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. 
being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. We pray with me. Father, we want to thank you for our time this morning in the Scripture. We believe this is your word. We ask then that you would speak to us now from your word, and that you'd give us ears to hear and discern your voice. You'd give us hearts that would not resist what it is you're saying to us, but rather we would receive it gladly and openly and desire to be changed by it. So do this now, we ask, in the name of Jesus, for your glory and for our good. Amen. When Paul came to the great city of Athens, immediately he noticed uh, the widespread idolatry and the abundance of idols. Idols everywhere. And he was provoked. Uh, He was bothered by what he saw bothered in such a way that he was moved to act. He couldn't sit by without doing something to improve the situation, so he began reasoning with the Athenians, first in the synagogue, then in the marketplace where people were just constantly hustling and bustling. And I I want you to look at that word so that begins verse 17. The word so is such a powerful word Honestly, an entire sermon could be preached on just this single word, the word so, because that word captures the essence of Paul's heart in this moment. It captures the essence of his drive to reach people with the message of Jesus. Paul saw that people were worshiping false gods, so he brought them Jesus instead. The word so, uh, the, the word so just captures Paul's concern for their well-being. Now, Athens was the intellectual capital of the world. Uh, you need to think Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. You're thinking Oxford, Cambridge. Harvard, Yale, MIT, and for those of us here on the West Coast, of course, Stanford. Right, Bill? 
Yes. And Dort. Got to think Dort, now a university. Yeah. You see, these were the kinds of people drawn to Athens. It was also a center for just world-renowned art and athletic competition. In fact, it boasted one of the world's largest sports stadiums. And uh, as you may know, it housed the first modern Olympics. The Athenians were well-cultured, and they knew it. They knew just how smart they were. They knew just how fit they were. They knew just how sophisticated and polished they were. And they wanted you to know it too. In other words, they're just like the so-called perfect people in our world that get under our skin. But they were lost. And that fact concerned and compelled the Apostle Paul. It says he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, which some took as just mindless babble. They just completely dismissed him. Others uh, understood Paul's message as referring to just another God who may or may not fit into their polytheistic views. In the end, they weren't sure what to make of it, so they invited him to share more at the Areopagus, where new ideas were told, where new ideas were just often exchanged. The Areopagus stood, you've probably seen pictures, the Areopagus, maybe you've been there, the Areopagus stood atop Mars Hill and overlooked the city, and this message from Mars Hill is one of the Apostle Paul's signature moments that has since become a go-to text for Christians everywhere when it comes to sharing Christ in non-Christian places. So I want you to picture I, I want you to picture your city, your neighborhood, your marketplace and and place of work or school. I want you to have that image in your mind. I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes and uh, personalize this to your situation. See the city, see the sights and the sounds, hear the sounds, smell the smells, see the faces of the people. Maybe you know some of their names. Maybe you know some of their stories. And the question is, how can we, how can you share Jesus with them more effectively? How do we communicate the message of Jesus to the people in our lives, including those uh, like the Athenians who seem to have it all together, or at least they think they do, and yet they're still worshiping false gods of many kinds? Paul's approach is helpful. His concern for the lost meant, meant doing something to help them. His concern, it wasn't enough for Paul to merely be concerned. His concern for the lost meant doing something to help them. And in this case, it meant meeting the people where they are 
on their level. It meant proclaiming the grandeur and grace of God. And it meant clarifying what God really expects of them. First, we must meet people where they are on their level. Verses 20 and, uh, 22 and 23 reveal that Paul was a student of people. He observed where they were coming from. He paid attention to how they lived and what they valued. He took time to understand their worldview so that he could speak into it in a way they could grasp. Paul was culturally competent. In short, he began on their level. It's what we sometimes call contextualization or incarnational ministry because isn't this exactly what Jesus did when he entered our world? Through his birth, he came to us in a way that relates, a way we could understand. Seeing our idolatrous hearts and knowing how far we've strayed from God, Jesus lived with us and among us in order to bring us to God. You see, life in the, in the Greco-Roman world went, meant worshiping so-called gods of all kinds. Gods of war, gods of money, gods of sex, a whole pantheon of gods and goddesses whom, whom you could look to depending on your need or circumstance uh, because a good life meant getting the gods on your side you were always paying homage to one or more of them, just hoping that they weren't irritable or moody when you needed them most. There was even, notice, there was even an unknown God to cover all the bases. It's what we might call a just-in-case God. Like, just in case all these other gods don't come through for me, I'm going to worship this unknown, unnamed God too. Philosophers of the day tried making sense of it all. Luke mentions the Epicureans and the Stoics. Well, the Epicureans were hedonists. They were practical atheists. Their basic philosophy was that the gods, if there are any, are so distant and uninvolved in our lives. Just live for whatever makes you happy. Pursue as much pleasure as you can, because after all, you're going to die soon anyway. I mean, they are the epitome of uh, eat, drink, and be merry. The Stoics on the other hand, believe that the gods are in everything. They're involved in every detail. And so you had better be dutiful and respectful 
and offer the sacrifices as you should because you certainly don't want to make them angry. Now, church, doesn't this sound familiar? We don't call it uh, Epicureanism or Stoicism anymore, but, but aren't these basic philosophies still present and active in today's world? Like the people of old, we also make gods out of war and money and sex, gods of power, prestige, and love, gods of knowledge and education and human intellect. I mean, I mean, we make gods of athletes, gods of authors, gods of talk show hosts, gods of musicians, gods of politicians. We have our own pantheon. We don't call them Zeus or Ares or Aphrodite, but we worship at these altars nonetheless. Either in pursuit of pleasure like the Epicureans or out of obligation like the Stoics, because When we live apart from the one true God, we're always searching for something more, something to satisfy the longing within. Like them, people today still worship what they do not know for reasons they may not understand. The church, or or, or church, the responsibility therefore falls on those who know the truth to share it with those who don't. But to do this better, we must observe and learn where people are coming from. We must build bridges that span the gap between where they are and where they need to be. Listen, waiting for them to just stroll into church one day won't cut it. Most people don't just stroll into church. Similarly, standing on our side of the chasm and just shouting at them over to their side, that won't cut it. We must go where they are and personally help them across. One of the first books I read when I came on staff here at East Parkway over 19 years ago is a book titled Between Two Worlds by John Stott. Have any of you heard of it? You you need to know this book. To this day, this book is a must-have when it comes to preaching and proclaiming the message of Jesus. And it is. It's written primarily for preachers, but it's really about proclaiming the message of Jesus. This book has impacted preachers worldwide, including me and anyone else who wants to learn how to share Christ effectively. And the basic premise of this book, again, it's called between two worlds. The basic premise is that we're all living, all of us, we're all living in this space between the world of God and God's truth 
and the world of fallen humanity. We're somewhere in this space between these two worlds. So to effectively bridge the gulf between these two worlds, we must, in Stott's words, we must be equally earthed in both. Hear this. It's not enough to camp in the world of God's truth without ever entering the world where real people are struggling with real issues that have eternal consequences. Learning scripture should always be coupled with learning people so that we can effectively help people learn who God is and what God is saying. Paul was equally earthed. Paul met people on their level. Paul took time to observe and understand their lives so that he could effectively introduce the truth of God into their worldview. By starting where they are on their level, notice he drew attention to the unknown God as a way of sharing the truth of God, saying in verse 23, what you therefore worship as unknown this I proclaim to you. Right? So now he's connecting dots. Which leads to the second truth. Proclaim the, the grandeur and grace of God. Proclaim the grandeur and grace of God. In verses 24 through 28, Paul is proclaiming the godness of God. Not one God among many, but the one and only God, the one true God. He's sharing, he's sharing with them both the grandeur of God as well as the grace of God. First, he highlights God as creator in verse 24. He starts where it all started, saying that God made the world and everything in it. Therefore, he's saying to them, therefore, listen, he doesn't need us to make anything for him. He doesn't need us to make any representations of him. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He isn't confined to temples made by human hands. Uh, he, nor is he served by human hands, verse 25, as though he needed anything. You see, Paul is saying he sustains our lives, not the other way around. He gives life. He gives the breath of life. He gives what's needed for life. From one man, Adam, he populated the earth and is sovereign over the nations of the earth, as verse 26 makes clear. You see, God has determined when you would be born. God has determined where you would be born, where you would live. God has allotted your time and your place in history. And all of this is meant to convey the grandeur of God. That He alone is God. And by God's grace, verse 27, it's all designed to by Him to prompt us to seek Him. Paul is saying, God is not hiding from us. God is not avoiding us. 
God is not looking for reason to smite us as many of their gods did or so they thought. No, God thoroughly knows us and he wants us to know him and so he has drawn near to us. He's not far from any one of us though he is creator and the author and sustainer of life, uh, he's greater than we can ever imagine. He's also closer than we even realize. That's, that's, that's what he's saying. This, this one who made the world and everything in it is right next to you. He's right there. He's very close. Years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Rome. And being in Rome, I went to Vatican City. And of course, when you're in the Vatican, you must see the Sistine Chapel because the artwork in the Sistine Chapel is absolutely stunning specifically the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel it's where Michelangelo spent over four years on scaffolding mostly lying on his back painting with incredible detail his interpretation of Genesis unfortunately for me being just 18 years old, I was distracted by other things, things that distract 18-year-old boys, like 18-year-old girls. And so I didn't appreciate the brilliance of what I was seeing as much as I should have. But one of the things you'll notice on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is that famous image where God's finger is touching Adam's finger. You've seen this. Well, this is part of a larger scene known as the creation of Adam. And in this scene, as you can see, God is, is, is pictured to the right. He is above Adam, and yet he is stretching to reach Adam. Adam is on the left and he's sitting rather passively, but he's responsive to God's touch, a touch that not only gives life to Adam, but to all humankind. And I think this picture illustrates God's grandeur and grace perfectly. His grandeur in that he is above us, he is greater than us, he is creator, but his grace, notice, in that he is stretching, he's almost straining to reach us and touch us and give us the gift of life. You see, God is initiating the contact in this photo, in this painting. So we see God's grandeur and God's grace here. That's the message Paul shared with the Athenians that day that God is far greater than us and yet he graciously draws near to us. And then in verse 28, he quotes from two of their poets, 
First from a poet named Epimenides, from a poem written centuries earlier, written about Zeus, where Epimenides said of Zeus, in him we live and move and have our being. And then Paul quotes a Stoic philosopher named Eratus, who lived in the third century before Christ and wrote, We are indeed his offspring. And again, Eratus was likewise referring to Zeus. Now, this is fascinating. You see what Paul is doing here. Paul is pulling from people they knew and respected saying these things you've been uh, reading and thinking all these years are basically true. But they don't refer to Zeus. It's about God. He's using their own sources to build a bridge Because as far as Paul was concerned, church, hear this, all truth is ultimately God's truth regardless of how it's packaged. In a different book, John Stott again says of this scene in Acts 17, He says, many people are rejecting our gospel today not because they perceive it to be false but because they think it's trivial. They're looking for an integrated worldview that makes sense of their experience. That's what Paul's doing. He's trying to make sense of their experience. Loved ones, we must never forget what it's like to be lost, what it's like to be searching, what it's like to be empty and yet struggling with hard questions. Most people are are trying to make sense of the world, and when we come with compassion and understanding to present the grandeur and grace of God as Paul did, we're poised to help them see just how near and relevant he is to their situation. I think if we... If we spent at least as much time learning people as we do learning scripture and thinking about how do we communicate this truth to these people in a way they'll get it. I think that's what Paul would want to say to us. Don't expect them 
to come to your Bible study. You bring the truth of the Bible to them. And to do that effectively, you've got to know them. You've got to learn them. You've got to learn what makes them tick. That's when you can most effectively proclaim the grandeur and grace of God. And then finally, thirdly, we must clarify what God expects of them. Once you meet people where they are on their level and introduce the reality of God into their worldview, take the next logical step by clarifying what God expects. He expects a response, specifically repentance. Verse 30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And I just want us to see how, how grace-saturated this statement is. Because it reveals how God has patiently, mercifully, graciously overlooked our past ignorance. But also it's, it's, it's also grace-saturated because it says that all that God asks of us now is to leave our life of sinful idolatry and return to Him. That's it. Like God does not expect us to pull ourselves up out of the mess we've made. God does not expect penance for all of our bad deeds and decisions. God does not expect that we clean up our own idolatrous hearts. What God does expect is repentance, which involves a turning around to your way of life. It means to turn from going your own way to go God's way instead. Paul is arguing that rescue from sin and ignorance is not found in anything we bring to the table. It's not found there. It's found in Jesus, just as he was saying earlier in the marketplace, it's found in Jesus and in his resurrection. Therefore, it makes no sense to make idols out of gold or silver or stone because that's not the kind of worship God wants. God doesn't want our idols. God doesn't want anything we manufacture. What could we possibly make that God doesn't already have? What God wants He wants our hearts. True repentance always begins in the heart. He wants our hearts. He wants hearts that hope in Christ. Because, as verse 31 continues, because a day is coming when God will judge our lives according to his standard of right and wrong. According to his standard of right and wrong. 
And so Paul's concern, his concern for them shows through in this statement too because he's honest with them about the judgment to come. Because we are created by God, we are accountable to God, because God is righteous, we are held to His standard of righteousness, and those who haven't repented will be judged accordingly. Those who don't rely on Jesus, they will be judged on their own degree of righteousness rather than the righteousness of Christ. And Paul stresses you can be sure of this because the same God who appointed and and confirmed Jesus has raised Him from the dead. If we care, if we care about lost people, shouldn't we be clear and honest with them? We need to be clear in calling for repentance. We need to be honest about God's judgment. Not everyone will respond favorably. But that's not ours to own. We can't own people's response. Not everyone responded favorably to Paul, as seen at the end of the chapter here. Some Athenians mocked him. Others just wanted to hear more and think about it. And others believed. And I think that's just a fair uh, picture of what happens whenever we share the message of Jesus. Some mock and make fun and disbelieve. Some are somewhat interested and they want to hear more and some believe. Sharing Christ effectively begins with genuine concern for the lost then doing something about it. It means means meeting people where they are on their level. It means proclaiming the grandeur and grace of God. It, it, It means clarifying what God expects of them. So what are you provoked by this morning? What are you provoked by? As you think about your city, your neighborhood, your family, your, your place of work or school. What are you provoked by? And what will you do about it? May God provoke us today and help us to respond accordingly. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for our time. Uh, Where to begin, God? We, I, I think, I think we all, each one of us, I think we all just we want to be we want to begin by confessing how how our supposed concern for the lost how we we don't act on that concern nearly enough And so would you give us hearts like yours? We need spiritual transformation.
in this regard so that we could move out in the power of the Holy Spirit and in step with the Holy Spirit and bring the message of Jesus to those who need it. And so even this week, I would pray that you would make us mindful of these things, help us to meet people where they are on their level, help us to proclaim your grandeur and grace, help us to be very clear about what you expect of them. Go before us and make the way. We'll pray for divine appointments this week. God, that even just represented in this room, that there would be numerous divinely appointed encounters where what we've heard today from your word could be applied. Do that, we pray, for your name's sake. Amen.